This is Truth and Focus, your radio program for worldview talk and issues that matter, with Josh Cumston and Gordon Teeson, broadcasting from the studio at Nebraska Christian Schools. Welcome to Truth and Focus. I'm Gordon Teeson, and I'm here in the Nebraska Christian Studios with a special guest, Pastor John Kinningham, who is the pastor at Newman Grove, the Bible Church. So, John, welcome to the program today. Thanks, Gordon. You spoke at chapel this morning, and we're going to get to that message here in a few minutes, but I wanted to ask Mm -hmm. you about your somewhat unique background as a pastor, the life you had before being a pastor, and you shared a little bit of that in government class today with some students at Nebraska Christian, but could you share how you went from secret service to being a pastor? Yeah, you know, the obvious answer is God did a work, but playing it out on the ground, so to speak, is just that from a young age, as I shared with the students, that when Reagan, the attempted assassination of Reagan, that impacted me. I was 13 years old, and that began a life pursuit of wanting to be in the Secret Service and through doors of going through law enforcement, getting a degree in criminal justice, and then eventually getting hired by the Secret Service. I had that dream realized and just thoroughly enjoyed it. But in the midst of the Secret Service, the Lord had another plan Mm -hmm. that changed my direction of life yet again. Mm And so, which brought me from law enforcement then to pastoring. Help our listeners a little bit with today's message that you gave. What was the reason you brought this message from the scripture? What was your intent before we get into your message? Yeah, well, in our church, we've started going through Luke's gospel. Mm -hmm. So we're at the end of Luke chapter 2, where Luke is the only one who records of the gospel writers, the account of Jesus at the temple at the age of 12. And it just reminded me, I guess, with me at a young age wanting to pursue a career and then gaining knowledge in that career, that the desire of each of us, like Jesus, even though he was only 12, he had a desire to know his Father. Now, obviously, there's a unique relationship Christologically between Christ and his Mm -hmm. Heavenly Father. But then again, he also uh, was a boy, a 12-year-old, like any other Mm 12-year-old, except without sin. And so it just reminded me that we should be about God's business. We should have a passion Mm -hmm. to pursue him as Christ did, because he was fully human. And I shared with the students a big heresy called Apollinarianism, which is a a big word for them. But nevertheless, when people tend to think of Jesus as having a human body and a God brain, Mm -hmm. but he was fully human. He had to grow in wisdom and in understanding. Mm -hmm. And therefore, he models that we should have a passion as his people Mm -hmm. to know him and to increase in knowledge and wisdom of God, for that is the greatest knowledge we can attain to. Good. Let's join Pastor John with today's message. You guys just went to Washington, D.C. On, there was an event there on March 30th, 1981. President Ronald Reagan was stepping out of the Hilton Hotel after speaking. He was waving, raising his left hand, and right then a man by the name of John Hinckley held up a gun. He began firing shots out of that gun in the direction of Reagan. Reagan was hit as the bullet ricocheted off the side of the armored limo and entered in under his left arm. Tim McCarthy, a Secret Service agent, was holding the door, and he was shot in the stomach a couple of times. And then a Washington, D.C. police officer was also hit. They shoved Reagan, Jerry Parr shoved Reagan into the car. They started driving. They were going to go back to the White House, and then Jerry Parr felt underneath Reagan's coat and came out, and his hand was full of blood. So they then went to GW Hospital, where they rushed Reagan into surgery. Reagan said to the surgeon, I hope you're all Republicans here this morning. (laughs) And the surgeon said, sir, today we're all Republicans. And they saved Ronald Reagan. 
Well, in a place called Fort Wayne, Indiana, a 13-year-old boy was watching that event, and that event transformed his life, though he was geographically removed from that event, and that was me. For I watched that footage over and over, and I decided that is what I want to be, not an assassin, but a Secret Service agent. So at the age of 13, that began my pursuit. And try going into your high school guidance counselor and saying, hey, do you have any information on the Secret Service? Uh, no. So I began pursuing law enforcement. At the age of 18, I was riding with police officers in my city where I lived in Indiana. It was a, something that I began to orient my entire life and pursuit. Went to college to major in criminal justice. Became a police officer. And then eventually got hired by the Secret Service. And then I was transferred to Cleveland, Ohio. I'm like, Cleveland? I'd never been to Cleveland, Ohio in my life. But that's where I began my time in the Secret Service. But it all began at the age of 13 that I oriented my entire life, all my training, all my schooling, to get hired by the Secret Service. I want you to turn in your Bibles in Luke chapter 2. Because I want you to see a 12-year-old boy. And what this 12-year-old young man, how he orients his life and how he begins to center his life at the age of 12. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 41. And I'm reading from the ESV, but follow along in whatever translation you have. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were turning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Do do you feel that they can't find him? Where's our son? Verse 46, after three days, they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Do you see how Jesus oriented his life? Even at a young age, his life was oriented and prioritized by a great love and passion for his heavenly Father. He lived out in his young age as a young man what all of us are called to live out regardless of our age this morning. Whether you're 45 or 15 or 16, he lived out what we are called to live out to passionately know who God is. And Jesus, even at the age of 12, is aware of His relationship to God. Passionately knowing God should be your pursuit regardless of whatever occupation you want to pursue in the future, even if you know that yet. 
It should drive you. It should consume your days. Is to know the God who created you. That's what the Bible teaches. It's not something I'm just trying to get up in a passion this morning. Jesus said in Luke 10.27, a number of chapters later, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. Deuteronomy 4.29, but from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find Him if you search for Him with all your heart and all your soul. Jeremiah 29.13, and you will seek Me and find Me when you search for Me with all your heart, with your entire being, with everything that you are, you will find the God of the universe there ready to meet you. And Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, a verse I'm sure you've heard before, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. I mention all these verses to encourage and to challenge you that that is the orientation of your life, that you are called to orient your life around a pursuit and a knowledge of God and who He is. And in the spirit of of that this morning, this is what Luke's section arises to describe the early life of Jesus. Indeed, Luke's the only one who records anything between the birth narrative and the time of his ministry at the age of 30 or early 30s. Luke's the only one who records this event at the age of 12. But what I find in this passage, and what I have found in my own life, is I needed to be confronted in my complacency, in my apathy towards God. That we can so easily get distracted that so many things can fill our plate that a knowledge of God passes into the background of our lives. And so I'd like for you to learn both from the example of Joseph and Mary and also from the Godward priority of Jesus. First, notice in verse 41 and 42 the Godward pattern of Joseph and Mary. The Godward pattern Joseph and Mary established. Look at verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. Luke records for us again and again in these first three chapters the incredible faithfulness of Joseph and Mary. Remember, Mary is probably 14 years old when Jesus is born. 13, 14, 15. And she is now the mother of Jesus. So at the age of 12, what is she, mid-20s? Maybe late 20s at this point with a 12-year-old son? Joseph in this culture would have been perhaps even 10 plus years older than Mary. But nevertheless, notice what it says. That they did this every year. They demonstrated their devotion to God by every year going to this Passover which Joseph was required to to attend as a Jewish male. Mary wasn't even required to attend this particular feast because it was for all the men to appear once a year and to come and to celebrate this Passover feast. But notice where they were to go, to Jerusalem. But you know what they didn't do? They didn't jump into their minivan and drive to J-Town. It wasn't an easy journey. To truly be faithful to God requires sacrifice. Joseph and Mary had to depart and they had to walk, assuming they went around Samaria, they had to walk 80 miles. 80 miles to go celebrate this feast. If they did 20 miles a day, 
That would have taken them four days to complete the journey down to the feast, be there over a week, and then four days to come back to Nazareth where they were living. There was a great sacrifice involved in order for them to show their faithfulness to God and to obey Him. And they would have gone down with a whole bunch of groups of families because you never traveled alone back then. Remember the Jericho road? The Jericho, the Good Samaritan? When he was beaten and left for dead, that's very often on the roads as you would travel at this time that there would be robbers and bandits and those that would come to rob you so you never traveled alone. And they would have gone with a big group from their village down to Jerusalem. But Joseph and Mary established this pattern and this was the home in which Jesus grew up in. He had parents who taught Him. Parents who centered their lives around God and around obedience to His Word. And that is what they should challenge us in a pattern of righteousness, a pattern of obedience. But we live in America. What are our lives centered around? Very often our lives are centered around entertainment. I was in Chicago last week and I stopped in the Best Buy for a moment. I know it's hard to believe in Newman Grove we don't have Best Buys. So I stopped in there and there was a whole line around the side of the store. And so I'm walking in going, okay, there's some launch today that I was completely unaware of. So I walk in and ask the employee, I go, hey, why are people sitting out in their coats freezing around the side of the building? He said, oh, the new Xbox. I believe it's Xbox, right? The new Xbox came out. Wow. Was it Xbox? PlayStation 4? Man, I'm so out of it. PlayStation 4. Anyway, you guys knew it was PlayStation 4. There are people who are willing to, I don't know how long, you know, they camped out. There were little tents and chairs, and they were all with blankets. Where is the focus of their life? You know, every time I get to church on Sunday morning, there's nobody around the building waiting to get in because they're so excited. Maybe that's the problem with the preacher more than anything else. But these people were waiting. Where is their orientation? They're willing to sacrifice greatly to get us PlayStation. But you have people, they come into church at 10.30 and like, oh, man, this is early. Man, I can't believe we have church this early in the morning. Really? And Jesus went to the cross for you? He who sacrificed His entire life and we can't sacrifice anything for Him unless it's something that entertains us. And then we'll give everything including all nights, to go and wait for a new PlayStation. So is Xbox just like out of it now? Is Xbox still good? Okay. All right, just making sure. I remember in the 80s when Atari came out, and it was a little line. Dee, 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 dee. Yeah. It's changed since then. But do you see Joseph and Mary's orientation? That was them. And you know what? They didn't begin it when they were in their 20s and 30s. They began it when they were young. They set their priorities, and then they oriented their life and began a godly pattern. But secondly, I want you to notice the Godward priority Jesus displayed. The Godward priority that Jesus displayed. So they have just a blessed time at the feast. I'm reading in the white spaces here. But notice in verse 43, when it ended, they returned home, and Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't know it. But supposing Him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. So remember, they're traveling in a big group. And it's the first century, so probably, though we don't know for sure, the men might have traveled separate from the women and the children, and so Mary could have thought, oh, Jesus, he's with Joseph, his father. 
And then Joseph thought, oh, Jesus, he must be with Mary, his mother. And so both of them thought he was with the other group, or maybe they were together and they just thought he was with the other boys or children in the group. But he wasn't because they began to search for him. Notice that amongst the relatives in verse 44, amongst the acquaintances, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? We can't find him. And they said, oh, no, we need to go back to Jerusalem. So they turn around, go back three days. So they're looking everywhere. They're frantic from what Mary says in verse 48. They are frantic trying to find him, and they can't find him. Notice what Mary says. Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. You've caused us pain is what she's saying. We are so distressed we can't find you. Jesus' parents are amazed because when they find Him as well, look at verse 47. There's a lot of amazement going on around Him. (laughs) I guess because of who He is. They were amazed as He's sitting amongst the teachers in verse 46. Now these would have been the all-stars of Jewish teachers. Probably don't think of it like in that terms, like the NBA All-Star Game. These are the All-Stars of the Jewish teachers because this is the feast that happened once a year. So all the teachers from outlying communities would have come to Jerusalem for this great feast, been seated around the temple yard, and you could have gone and sat down. Their students would have been there. They would have been teaching. And they commonly taught by question and answer way as the students sat around. And there is Jesus sitting there amongst the teachers, and He's amazing, the scholars and the rabbis. And He's 12 years old. He's asking them questions, and He's responding, and He's interacting. And they were amazed at how much He already understood. But Joseph and Mary arrive, and don't picture Mary going up in the midst of this and going, Jesus, how dare you? No, she would have come up and taken Him away to begin, because that would have been, remember, she's a woman in the midst of the temple yard. She would not have been screaming at Him. Would have pulled Him aside and imposed the question in verse 48. Now, in verse 49, wait for it. You have the first words recorded in Luke that Jesus speaks. All through these first chapters, all the way to now, it's only been the angel Gabriel speaking or the angels before the shepherds speaking. Now we finally hear from the coming one who was spoken of. And in verse 49, he said to them, Joseph and Mary, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? If you're looking at a new King James, it would say I must be about my Father's business. And his first statement that Luke records, Dr. Luke records for us, is the priority of the Lord Jesus and the necessity of His task. It is clear that at the age of 12, Jesus was already deeply aware of what God the Father wanted Him to do. And He was coming into more and more of an understanding of it. And there's a unique relationship between He and His Father, though Luke doesn't begin to unpack it here for us. And obviously, Jesus does not speak about it. Now later in life, He's going to refer to His relationship with His Father again and again and again. And how critical that is, and how mission critical it is, that He's representing God. In fact, think about it. Only the Father knows the Son completely. And only the Son knows the Father completely. But Jesus declares how necessary. Did you not know that I must? That I must. Luke is going to repeat that again and again. I must. I must be killed and three days rise again. I must go and teach. I must go and preach. And Jesus says here, I must be in my Father's house. It's necessary. It's a divine must that was on His life. And let me say that you are not immune from the divine must. 
You must follow Christ. He offers no negotiation to anyone on the planet. We are called to follow Him. That is the divine mandate that is on our lives. That we must be disciples. That we must follow Christ. Because God never negotiates with anyone. He is not a negotiator. And Jesus before us in verse 49 brings up the mysteriousness that not only do we not understand, but notice Joseph and Mary in verse 50 do not understand what He was talking about and what He was saying to them. Mary just walks away and ponders it in her heart in verse 51 about what He said. Remember the disciples didn't even understand what Jesus was about. So it's no surprise that He is hard to understand. They all had questions, just like we have questions. I always like to ask people, what part of Christianity is simple to understand? What's easy to understand? People go, oh, that stuff, that election stuff, that's super lapsarianism. Boy, that's difficult stuff. What part is easy? God becoming man? Is that easy? Who wrote the book of Romans? Oh, Paul did. Did Paul write it? Or did the Holy Spirit write it? Who wrote it? Is that simple to understand? All of Christianity is a paradox. Which again reminds us, and students, don't be distressed over that. It reminds us that it's a divine-oriented religion. It's a divine-oriented belief system. Because if we had made this up, we would have fixed it, right? We would have said, oh, you can't write that. That doesn't make sense with what he said. You make it complicated. It reminds us once again that the source of Christianity and of Christ is from the eternal God. And there should be mysteriousness in it because it is hard to understand an eternal God and then Him becoming man. But it is clear before us that Jesus had a Godward focus, a priority from a young age. And please remember that Jesus is a real 12-year-old boy. There's a heresy called, and I know you were just thinking this, called Apollinarianism. You were just thinking that, right? Wait, I may be guilty of Apollinarianism. Apollinarianism believes that Jesus had a human body, but He had a God brain. So He walked around just, oh, I'm God. Sitting with His mom and dad at dinner. Well, do you just want me to weigh in on this, or do you guys want to debate it a little more? Because I'll just let you know what's going to happen. That wasn't Jesus. Don't picture Him like that. He had to learn. If He would have come today, He would be sitting out there in the audience doing what you're doing. Thinking, interacting, working out in His mind the implications, obligations that a text presents for Him. That's what He did. He grew in His understanding. I don't get it. He is still fully God, but yet He set aside the independent use of His divine attributes. So He wasn't sitting there as a 12-year-old going, boy, I'm glad I'm omniscient for this test. He didn't sit there as a 12-year-old and go, boy, I already know the presidents of the United States, which isn't even going to exist for a number of centuries. That was not Jesus. He was completely unaware of America. He had never heard of it, never even heard of that part of the world when he was a boy, indeed, even when he was a man, because he was fully human. The time he used his attributes as God is when the Holy Spirit came upon him and empowered him to then live out the attributes that God had given to him. Look what, how Luke ends the chapter. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. 
He increased in wisdom. You know what you're called to do? You're called to increase in wisdom. But if you limit your wisdom to the wisdom of this world, then it will be a very unfulfilling life. Jesus increased in wisdom, not just of His world, but who God is and what God has done because His life was oriented to who His heavenly Father was. And His whole life was centered around, I must be in my Father's house. I must be about God's business. That's what He was called to do. Let me give you just a few implications in regards. If we're going to emulate Jesus, who is a model for how we should live in light of the reason for which we were all created. The first thing we must learn is that whatever we may owe to men must ultimately yield to the authority of God. Whatever we may owe to men must yield to the authority of our God. Jesus was willing, you notice, to go back with His parents and to live with them submissively. He modeled what we are called to do when we live in our parents' home, and that is submit to them, though He was a unique individual. But whatever we may owe to man, we must ultimately yield to the authority of God because one day, students, it's not that you're going to stand at the end of your life before your teacher or before your peers. You're going to stand before the living God. You're going to stand before God Himself and give an account of your life before Him. Therefore, don't let others run your life. And very often I think back to how much I lived in fear of what others thought and that controlled my decision making. Right? You live that way. It just depends who the person is. You may say, I don't care what anybody thinks. That is not true. You do care what someone thinks. I just don't know who it is, but you do. Don't let them control your life. Let God, through His Word, control your life. And then your life will have the right direction that Jesus did. That we are called and you were created for the glory of God. The first answer, or the first question to the Westminster Catechism is what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That is your chief end. Whatever occupation you want to do for your life, that is great. But remember that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Orient your life that way. Secondly, the hunger and desire to grow in our knowledge and understanding of God should drive us. The hunger and desire to grow in our knowledge and understanding of God, that should drive you. And if it doesn't drive you, then I would question whether you are a Christian this morning. Because the greatest knowledge you can have is of the Creator of the universe. And there's only one knowledge that unites us this morning. None of you in this room, I don't think, were in the secret service. I have a knowledge that you don't. But that doesn't matter. And you may say out there, I don't want to do that. That's fine. There's many things that you have an understanding of that I don't have an understanding of. That knowledge could never unite us. But what should unite us if we are in Christ is the knowledge of Christ. The knowledge of our triune God. That should be the greatest knowledge that should unite us. That's why I can go to India a month ago and teach a group of Indian men becoming pastors and we have a knowledge that immediately unites us, though I'm from America, and they grew up in India. But yet we're immediately laughing, having fun, talking about God's Word, challenging one another because we have a common knowledge base that we're all trying to grow. That understanding of God should drive us. The greatest thoughts you can have are thinking God's thoughts after Him. The greatest thoughts you can have are thinking God's thoughts after Him. It's not trying to figure out how you beat some game. 
It's thinking God's thoughts after Him because He's a beautiful and glorious God that should capture our hearts and minds and our affections. Jesus said in John 17.3, and this is eternal life, that they can play Xbox continuously forever. And this is eternal life, that they can play golf in heaven forever. And this is eternal life that you can sit and watch football or Nebraska football or NASCAR or basketball or whatever your thing is. Well, that's eternal life. That's not eternal life. Jesus said, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's eternal life. And when does eternal life begin? It's when you first repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ because then your knowledge is beginning to grow about Him. And that is eternal life. Knowing God. Augustine said, hopefully that name's not completely new to you, Augustine said, and he spoke apparently in King James in the 400s, Thou movest us to delight in praising Thee, for Thou hast formed us for Thyself, and listen to this, and our hearts are restless till they find rest in You. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in You. Blaise Pascal, a great philosopher and scientist, said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person, and it can never be filled by any created thing. It can only be filled by God made known through Jesus Christ. That's why you are made. That's the purpose of your life. Whatever occupation you choose to fulfill, the greatest purpose that should drive it all should be wanting to know God through the person of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, a priority and implication of what Jesus has modeled for us is the corporate gathering of the church should be the number one priority of your life. The corporate gathering of the church should be the number one priority in our lives as we live. The Bible commands this. Jesus modeled it. But yet, so many other things can take its place. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Well, what's the day drawing near? That Christ is going to return. So live in light of the return of that, which is keep getting together corporately as My people and consider how to stir one another up to love and good works because you wouldn't want the Lord to return and find you faithless, but to find you faithful. Acts 2.42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And do you remember the commands to love one another? Love one another, serve one another, encourage one another. All the one another's is over 30. One another's of Scripture. How do you do that if you aren't making the gathering of God's people, the church, your number one priority? My friends, we need to quit prioritizing worldly events. And instead, prioritize eternal events in our lives. It's amazing to me, I just moved from Texas a little over a year ago. So living around the Dallas-Fort Worth area, I moved from a city of over 6 million to a town of 700. A little bit of a culture shock for me from city living. But I am amazed, and having not gone to Nebraska, I'm amazed that towns shut down when the Cornhuskers play football. Right? I love football. And I'll, I'll watch Nebraska. But I called someone when I first got here during a Nebraska football game. And that was like the unforgivable sin. They're like, why? They actually said, why are you calling me right now? I, I just had a question for you. The game's on. What game? 
I went to Indiana. We don't have a football. We're everybody's homecoming game. So they can win their homecoming. That's Indiana University football. Now, basketball is a different story. But football, I was rebuked for my lack of knowledge of Nebraska football. Now, is there anything wrong with Nebraska football? Well, this year there is. But <laughs> normally, if they're doing better, then there's nothing wrong. But if that, whatever's on your calendar, that is immovable. And that's what it is. It is immovable in people's calendars. Why does Sunday morning, the gathering of God's people, why is that always movable and you can chuck it? Gathering to worship the eternal living God. Why, why is that? Oh yeah, if we don't have to go out of town or anything, then we'll go to church. But yeah, all this, boy, we've got to make our TV show. Do you think Jesus would go, good job. Yeah, don't miss that TV show. But yeah, the worship of me, the risen Savior of the universe, you can disregard. I don't think Jesus would be pleased with that. And it doesn't even make logical sense if you believe the Bible. Fourthly and finally, don't expect others to understand you and your desire to know the eternal God. Don't expect others to understand you. So I, I'm in the secret service. I come to know Christ while I'm in the secret service. I was raised in a Christian home, but I didn't want that silly stuff because you had to change how you lived, and I love sin rather than righteousness. So I come to know Christ in the secret service, so I'm with some guys on a protective detail, and they're like, okay, you got all weirded out on us. The rumor became, Kenningham found God. Well, I didn't find God. God found me, right? God, God isn't lost. I was the one who was lost. And so it changed how all those guys interacted with me. But my, I thought if I explained it and used the Bible to explain, because these were religious guys, it was flying all over. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it. So I was sitting with England with Vice President Gore and some other agents. Gore went in with Tony Blair. And the guys are, so we're sitting in a suburban, an armored suburban. And they go, John, you better step out for this one. We got some dirty jokes we want to tell. Thank you. So I get out of the car and go walk around. Not too far because there were a lot of security around because it was during the IRA, the Irish Republican Army and terrorist attacks and threats against the prime minister. But I'm walking around in darkness while these guys, I guess, are telling whatever. And I can hear them hooping and hollering. and they're having fun in there. But my, my naivety was I shouldn't expect them to understand that my pursuit is of the eternal God not knowing their jokes. And that's what I would encourage you. Don't expect others to understand. If your parents aren't Christians, don't expect them to understand. People you'll work with one day, other students maybe who don't know Christ. The Apostle Paul said, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I still trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Do you hear that? Do you hear the juxtaposition he puts them? If I'm trying to please man, I can't be a servant of Christ. Because if you are a Christian, then Christ is your Lord. And He runs your life. Not the fear of what other people will say. And Jesus modeled that for us. That all through His life, He said, I will be about my Father's business. So could you say this statement? If someone surprised you at church, what are you doing at church? Well, why are you surprised? Did you not know that I would be about my Father's business? That I would be in my Father's house? Because that's who I am as a believer. That should be the statement we should be able to make. And you as students should be able to make that if you know Christ. If you know Him. Because this is why He came, is to reorient us to God His Father. Let's pray together. Our Father, we give You thanks 
for your word and for the modeling Jesus did. That we are called to emulate him and he had a Godward focus, a Godward passion. Lord, that we can't simply dismiss because he was 100% God, but he was 100% man. He showed us as the second Adam what we are to truly live like. How we are to truly orient our lives. And Lord, I pray for these students. I pray, Lord, as they are getting this education, as they are being confronted with the claims of the Gospel, with the truth of the Word of God, that it wouldn't simply be water off a duck's back, but would sink deeply into their souls and transform them. Lord, do Your work as a great saving God. And Lord, draw all of us to Yourself, whether students or or teachers or faculty and myself. Lord, may we have a passion to know You, to give our lives to show You that we're seekers of Your heart. Lord, we give You thanks for Christ and all He has done on the cross and in the resurrection for our forgiveness of sins. May You be glorified and as we go today, may You walk with us and give us wisdom and may each of us grow in wisdom of who You are. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Pastor John Kinningham pastor of Fellowship Bible Church at Newman Grove. Well, this wraps up the program today. You've been listening to Truth and Focus. For my co-host, Josh Cumston, this is Gordon Thiessen. Thanks for joining us as we encourage, engage, and equip Christians in today's culture war while bringing the truth in focus.